I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to try to worship God in spirit and in truth. Very hot in Salt Lake City today, has been for the past two weeks, and uh, so if you hear fans buzzing, don't let it bug you. We're also, just to let you know, that not that you could know, having trouble with streaming tonight. I think Seth's going to put something on the website, but we are recording the show, so you'll be able to go back and watch it once we get this fixed. In terms of announcements, Dr. Don Preston is coming here to the Heart of the Matter studios September 11th and 12th. We've talked about that. Plan to be here. We'll get more information on times, etc. as we draw closer to that. I'm debating whether I should cover this now or wait. Why not cover it now? The big gay homosexual marriage issue. What do we say? What did Jesus say about marriage? Do you remember? He said, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. That's what the Lord said about marriage. I think Christians have stuck their foot in, into something that is of this world. They made it part of the church's area of control. They've controlled that area for a long time, and now they're having their heads handed to them. If the churches taught marriage properly, they would not have allowed themselves to get involved in this from way back, and it wouldn't be an issue today. How does the Bible describe marriage? Listen, it's never taught. Marriage is consummation. It's, that, it's when two become one. When a woman and a man who are taken from one Woman and man, are, man is created, and then a woman comes from him. And when those two become one, that is the biblical definition of marriage. Marriage is not a ceremony. It's terrifying for the churches to teach that because they want to control things, and they want to make sure that they put the stamp of approval on, and the government can get all the records right, and taxes, and all this other stuff. But from a Christian biblical perspective, marriage is not a ceremony. We've got it all wrong. It's when the two become one, which were one once taken from one. Now listen, no matter what, no matter how hard homosexuals try, they can never be married in the biblical sense. 
It's impossible. It cannot happen. In the legal sense, sure. Legally, sure. But what do Christians care about what the laws are all about? I mean, legally, you can smoke pot in Colorado. What does it matter? What are you worried about? This world has fallen. In the biblical sense, it doesn't hold water. Oh, we care about it. Ah, that's right. We're policing the world again, aren't we? We want to police the world. How will homosexuals ever know the love of God unless Christians dedicate themselves to sharing that with them? To bring the Spirit into their lives, to give them a shot at overcoming the flesh that all of us were given when we believed because someone shared it with us. Homosexual activities do not keep someone out of heaven. What keeps people out of heaven is faithlessness. Not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our job as believers who have sinned too is to bring people to faith, not police their sin. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Once the Holy Spirit comes into the individual's life, I sin far less now as a regenerated believer than I did when I was a religionist. The Holy Spirit has been doing its job. I can guarantee you I don't sin less because some man tells me I need to. That only turns the opposite for me and makes me want to say, Thanopole. But when the Holy Spirit is saying it, that causes me to say, okay, I need to do some changing. This insipid, stupid, ugly, self-righteous war over this thing is making Satan's day. I mean, Derek was showing me that there's people who've got the rainbow flag over their faces on Disgrace Book, and then there's people who have the cross flag or whatever on there, and everybody's dividing and splitting up and warring and bringing everything that Jesus was about, discussion, dialogue of truth, right out of the picture absolutely ridiculous. As a body, we are once again proving to the world how badly we misunderstand Jesus, grace, and our purpose as believers. Every single follower of Christ ought to humbly reach out to all people of all walks in love with Him. Nothing more just him and let them decide what they'll do with him that's shining a light into the dark all this other stuff is just embarrassing with that let's have a word of prayer whoop Derek I think I'm having a tornado up here all right Lord we uh, we seek you we want to be authentic Christians. We want to not displease you. We want to please you by our faith and our love. And we want to pursue you hotly. We want to pursue you hard. We want to understand you with all of our, our mind and all of our heart and then our hands and feet to follow. And we pray that you will help us to understand you. We love you. We love your word. We love the spirit. Help us to understand it by virtue of spiritual eyes with an eternal view. We pray for our uh, volunteers and the people who donate so much time and talent to keeping the ministry and the shows going 
And we just pray that you will be with us and those who are seeking truth in Jesus' name, amen. None of what I am going to share tonight affects me or my faith in God or His Son. I believe that most of the things that we're going to talk about have reasonable explanations. But the reason I am showing them, and they're going to be troubling to some of you, is because I want to show that there are paradoxical stances presented in Scripture, and those cause people to have paradoxical views of what is said. They cause us to have divisions because they're present in Scripture. For example, we have the stance that God is all-knowing. No surprises to Him, right? You've heard of that? Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. We have that passage. But then Genesis 6.6 6 says, And it repented the Lord that He had made man on earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. So we have two just simple passages that we could read and we could say, wow, we could take those a different way. Exodus 33:23 shows us that God can be seen and heard. But Jesus said in John 1:18 that no man can see God at any time. This has created so many discussions between the LDS and the Christians about what that really means. And yet there are clear passages that say, and I saw God. I understand how to explain them. That's not this point. The point is, this is the type of thing that causes differences. Acts 1.24 says that God knows the hearts of men. But Deuteronomy 8.2 says, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee, and to prove thee, and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou would keep his commandments or not. We say he knows everything, but that passage says that he had them in the wilderness so that God would know what they would do. This is why open theists exist in this world. We almost agree that God is all-powerful, right? I do. Jeremiah 32:27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? We have that passage. We get it. But turn to Judges 1:19. What does it say? And the Lord was with Judah, and he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. That's really interesting, isn't it? God says in Jeremiah, is anything too hard for me? And yet, in Judges 1.19, we, we have uh, uh, the writer telling us that he couldn't drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. I'm not trying to show you that the Bible is inconsistent. I'm trying to show you that there's a lot of things in it that cause us to take different views and we are going to lose our children and we're going to lose people who are going to go and discover these things after having been told that it is completely consistent and answerable and every single doctrine and, and theology can be answered in the Bible without any question. That's not true. And that's why it's an appeal to subjective Christianity. Last week, we used water baptism as a vehicle to prove my point, but we had a follow-up call from David who claimed to know things, he said. Admittedly, Scripture does tell us we have the ability to know that we have been saved. First John talks about that. I believe that. But it is also clear that we walk by faith 
not by sight. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for? And that Paul said, for now we see through a glass darkly. That means our view is obscured. Then face to face, now I know in part, but then, after this life, shall I know even as I am known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Not only do claims of knowledge of things, I know this, puff us up, but they lead to dogmatic rules and laws, and where there are fixed laws, there is a potential for sin. I'm going to tell you something that's scary. You want to see a zealot? You want to see a fanatic? You want to see someone who's willing to take life in the name of God? That would be a person who says, this is what this means. You had better agree with it. That is, I have, we have a friend, Dr. Rivera, and he writes in some really insightful things. And he writes in, he says, the, the impetus behind the thinking of the Calvinists that we can take and, and pay, make God answerable to these, to these theologies is the same impetus that drives people to say, I know for a fact this is what it is. And if you don't comply, you're in big trouble, Buster. All the way from being mean to somebody, to ostracizing, to even killing. It's, it's at the heart of all of it. We can stop sinning in areas of dogma as a people by replacing dogma and differences on the altar and trusting in God and His loving grace, giving each of us a break. I'm going to talk about a point Larry brought up last week toward the end here, and it's important. Moving on, we have passages that speak of God being unchangeable. Malachi 3.6, and changeable. Jonah 3.10, and that He is impartial. Psalms 92.15, and partial. Romans 9, 11 through 13. James tells us that God freely gives to those who ask. Jesus adds in Luke eleven ten, for everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. But John twelve forty, citing the Old Testament, says, Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, and they could not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Proverbs 8.17 says, God is found by those who seek Him, but Proverbs 1.28 plainly says that God will not be found by those who seek Him. Those absolutely contradictory passages. Numbers 32.13 said, God's anger is fierce, quote, and endures long. Psalms 103.8 says, God's anger is slow and endures for but a minute. Which is it? It kind of depends on how you want to see God, doesn't it? How you're, what your perspective is of God. We're told that often people believe God is a reflection of what their fathers were like. If you had a, a brutal, barbaric, mean father, often the people who follow Jesus view God as brutal and barbaric and mean. This is just a common thing. It's not, I'm not saying it's hard and fast, but it occurs in people who have a liberal, loving, casual father or no father at all are often very kind and liberal and loving because that's how their models were. Jesus prayed in Matthew 6 that God would not lead them into temptation. Don't lead them into temptation. But James 1.13 says God tempts no man. Why did Jesus pray? Lead them not into temptation. And James says God doesn't tempt a man. In Exodus 24, God says this about making graven images. 
Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, nor any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, and that is in the water under the earth. But in Exodus 25, 18, God said, Thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work thou shalt make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. He tells them in Exodus 20, you do not make a graven image. And in Exodus 25, he says, make cherubims of gold that reflect uh, creatures that are in heaven. Moses made a brass serpent, didn't he? Is that not a graven image? Of course, it, it turned on the uh, children of Israel. They took that brass serpent and they started to worship it or venerate it. And, and, and it was smashed to pieces. And, 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 and they said, Nehushtan, it's a piece of garbage. So we know why God doesn't want us to, and we could talk about these differences, but again, what is right? What is wrong? Jesus said plainly, plainly in Matthew 7, judge not. The word in the Greek, krino, not. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 says, judge. You are believers, judge. Which do you take? It, the, the word Paul uses is krino as well, by the way. It's not a play on Greek words. We can say, well, we have to look at context. I agree with that. But context doesn't always answer these, these problems that come about when God is speaking. A Nazarite vow prohibited certain men from ever cutting their hair. Uh, Samson, uh, John the Baptist, Samuel, all lifelong Nazarite vow. Paul condemns long hair. He says it's a shame for a man to have long hair. No work was to be done on the Sabbath day under penalty of death. Jesus clearly broke the Sabbath day and justified his disciples in doing the same according to the way that it was understood and not through some of the extra laws that they put upon him. He clearly said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I can do that. It's something to consider. Baptism? Baptism? We talked about it last week. Sabbath day? There's a reason why some people believe Sunday rules ought to be obeyed and others disregard it altogether. There's a reason that there's a division on this. Too much information to go into it tonight, but there are groups that are great Christians who try to follow a Sunday Sabbath, and there are groups that are great Christians who don't even care about the concept. Why? Because the Bible provides them with information on both hands. When people call in here and say, it tells us clearly, I want to know on what? What is clear? Ephesians 6.2 says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Jesus said in Luke 14.26, If any man comes to me and hates not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Point blank. Done. And you can't get around the word hate. It means... Mm. Paul recommends wine to Timothy. Proverbs and Psalms endorses alcoholic drink. But naturally, Proverbs also warns against consuming alcoholic drink. 1 Timothy 2.12 and 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 1 Peter 3.6 uh, prove that women's rights in the body are absolutely denied. 
You can use those passages, quote them. I got a story to tell you later on. In Judges 4, 4, 14 and 15, and 5, 7, Acts 2, 18, Acts 21, 9, and Saul's benediction in Romans, affirm women's rights. Paul writes and he tells the people of the believers in Rome to follow after a woman there and do whatever she tells them to do. Jesus says that there is an unpardonable sin in Mark 3.29 and Acts 13.39. But no, Acts 13.39 says, And by him all that believe are justified from all things, which could not be justified by the law of Moses. Jesus said there's an unpardonable sin. We read in Acts that uh, uh, Luke wrote that we are justified from all things. Can these things be reasonably explained? Again, 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 of course they can. Most of them have reasonable explanations, but they are not all embraced the same way by all believers. Genesis 8.22 says, seed time and harvest were never to cease. Genesis 41 says, seed time and har harvest ceased for seven years. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it God or Pharaoh himself? Depends on which verse you read in Exodus. Exodus 9, 3, 6 and 14, 9 says all the horses died in Egypt. Exodus 14, 9 tells us not all the horses died in Egypt. Numbers says that 24,000 died of the plague. 1 Corinthians 10, 8 says it was 23,000. A scribal error? Probably. But that goes against any King James onlyist who says there's not a single scribal error in the whole uh, Bible that we have today. I understand no scribal error in the way that it's traditionally seen that the Bible is inerrant in its original manuscripts. I agree with that. But the King James onlyists say the Bibles we have today have nothing wrong with them. That's how zealous and literal they become. And when our children find out that that's not true, we lose ground with them on if we've taught them correctly. Two thieves reviled Christ, but according to Luke 23, 39, only one thief did. The entire resurrection accounts in the Gospels, you cannot reconcile them. It is impossible. Uh, I think that's a good thing. If they completely colluded with one another, then we would show that they, there was a collusion. If every word of the resurrection was the same, then we would know it didn't come from different points of view. The fact that they come from different points of view and different information is given proves to me that they were, there was no collusion going on, but that the accounts were, in fact, correct. How many women came to the sepulcher? You tell me. How many? One? That's John 20, verse 1. Two? That's Matthew 28, 1. Three? That's Mark 16, 1. More? That's Luke 24, 10. How many angels came? What did they do? According to the Bible, you tell me, on what day of the week was Jesus crucified? Tell me. Was it Friday? Good Friday? Oh, yes, absolutely. Could it have been Thursday? It could have. Could it have been Wednesday? Probably more good evidence for Wednesday than Thursday or Friday. But we don't ever teach that. Tradition steps in. Do we look and search? Does it matter? It does to a lot of people. Problem is a lot of people have their facts wrong and we get problems. When did the apostles receive the Holy Spirit? Oh, that one I got. That one I got down. Pentecost. That's when they received the Holy Spirit. We stick to it. We've been teaching through John. Listen, John 20, 21, 22 says, 
Jesus then said to them, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. All the commentaries I studied when we were teaching this in church said, well, you know, they got some of the Holy Spirit. They got a little hors d'oeuvre of the Holy Spirit. But the full amount came later at Pentecost. All kinds of justifications. Some of them probably really good, but some of them probably not. How do we know? Can we step back from dogma and say, let's just try to read the word, love the Lord, pursue after others in love and faith? Or do we have to split and divide? The disciples were commanded to immediately after the resurrection go to Galilee, according to Matthew 20.10. Or were they told to go to Jerusalem, as Luke 24.49 suggests? When Jesus appeared to Paul, did his attendants hear a miraculous voice? This was an old trick we used to use on Christians as Mormons. We would point this out and we'd say, you trust the Bible? Well, which was it? Did, did the attendants that were with Paul hear the miraculous voice and stand speechless? Not move, as Acts 9, 7 suggests. Or did they hear a voice and fall prostrate, which means they did move. One account says they stood speechless and didn't move. One says they did not hear a, a voice, but they fell. Was Keturah Abraham's wife, as Genesis 25, 1 say? Or was she a concubine, as 1 Chronicles 1, says? Which was it? 1 Samuel 24.1 says David was tempted by the Lord to number Israel. 1 Chronicles 21.1 says Satan did the tempting. Who did the tempting? We would say, well, God through Satan did. But we can see that you can't be dogmatic. And then if it was God through Satan, did God ultimately do it? If so, he's in conflict with James who says God tempts no man. How do we answer these things? We answer them humbly. And we say we don't know. And we say it's okay to not know. And we say that we follow him in faith and we trust his word. And if there's something that we don't understand, we say, it's okay. We don't build mountains out of molehills. And I'm talking about pretty much everything. Everything. I can't, I don't know anything that doesn't fit under this. What is your opinion? Are you allowed to have an opinion on this? Or does the Bible have to tell you clearly and you have to make own stance one way or another? Listen, I came out of a religion where I was spoon-fed dogmatic facts that almost all proved to be a lie. And, or at least an obfuscation of the truth. And when the information wasn't available to the teachers who I trusted, they made schnit up. And I bought into it like a fish biting into a worm on a hook. And you do it to a Latter-day Saint who bought that hard before, you're going to find Latter-day Saints who are going to say, I'm going to check things out, or they're going to just cash in again and buy into another system, which I just, I hope they don't. Whenever a contradiction arises, we, we, we have to be honest about what it is. Same exact thing in, 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 in evangelical Christianity. This does not mean God is not real. This does not mean his Bible or his word is not uh, uh, equipped completely to lead us with everything we need to know about God in this life. Um, it, but it means our approach cannot be dogmatic for the sake of our own walk, for the sake of our children and our children's children. Because of computers, the Bible is going to come under huge scrutiny. 
and they're gonna tear this stuff apart more and more, analytically rip up these little uh, things. We're gonna have guys like Bart Urban come out who have PhDs, who are well-learned men, and they're gonna say the Jesus story is a myth. And we're gonna have all of that. And the more of these things that can be thrown at our children, because we've taught them to just take it as it says, are gonna hurt them. And so we have to do it right. 2 Samuel 24.9 says that the number fighting Israel was 800,000 and of Judah 500,000. Chronicles 21.5 says the number fighting Israel was 1,100,000 and Judah 470,000. Again, little marks there can cause the big difference. That's what I ascribe it to. In my estimation, no big deal. Could be wrong. 1 Kings plainly says David never sinned. This is what it says, except in the manner of Uriah. Second Samuel says, David sinned in numbering the people. In John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and my father are one. In John 14, 28, he adds, for my father is greater than I. It creates all kinds of questions. And these questions lead often to divisions. Trinitarians conveniently explain this stuff away, but are there other viable op options? And if there are, do we have to castigate people who consider them? Luke 2.13 tells us that Jesus' mission was peace. Matthew 10.34 says it was anything but peace. In John 8.18, Jesus says, I am one that bears witness of myself and the Father that sent me bears witness of me. But John 5.31, he said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Did he bear witness of himself or did he not? If he did, he says right there, my witness wouldn't be true. But he says in John 8.18, I am one who bears witness of myself. Exodus plainly teaches that, that children are punished for the sins of the parent, Exodus 25. Ezekiel plainly states that children are not punished for the sins of the parent, Ezekiel 18, uh, 20. The biggies, is man justified by faith alone? Certainly one of the, one of the Reformation's big clar, uh, clarion calls. Or is man not justified by faith alone? I know where I stand on it, clearly, faith alone. Most Christians do, but there are Christians who say, yeah, you gotta, you gotta continue, you gotta throw in some of your duties. Are they allowed that right? Is it impossible to fall from grace? Or is it possible to fall from grace? Is there to be a physical resurrection of the dead or no physical resurrection of the dead? The earth is to be destroyed according to 2 Peter 3.10, Hebrews 1.11, and Revelation 20.11. Or the earth is never to be destroyed, Psalms 105 and Ecclesiastes 1.4. Is the Christian yoke easy? If so, how are we to take John 16.33? In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, Jesus says. And 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live in godly in Jesus Christ shall suffer persecution. That doesn't sound like an easy yoke. I know what it means. That with him, the, the light, the yoke is light because he is with us. I get that. But when people read these things, I mean, there's self-flagellation in the Philippines so that they can feel more pain, so that they can draw closer to God through more of a yoke. You understand what I'm trying to say? Hebrews 2.6.8 says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourgeth. That's the same word they use for Jesus being scourged. Every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? 
Proverbs tells us that wisdom is a source of enjoyment. Solomon, the one who had the greatest amount of wisdom on earth, says it's nothing but vexation, grief, and sorrow. Laughter is commended. Laughter is condemned in the holy book. Ecclesiastes brings these up. How are we to interpret? Listen to these last ones. There is nothing unclean of itself. Romans 14, 14. All scripture is inspired, 2 Timothy 3.16. But didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 7.6, I speak this by permission and not of commandment? Paul clearly in several places says, this isn't of the Lord. This is just something I want to say to you. He says it three or four times in his epistles. In chapter 6, he says, but, I, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. We say every, every verse is him. But here, Paul says, don't listen to this one. In 2 Corinthians eleven seventeen, Paul writes, That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord. He clearly tells us there. Dogmatically, believers demand that every single word today is his, but Paul suggests otherwise. And then when are we going to get rational when people say the Bible is the word of God? We have to ask, which Bible? And then we have to ask the King James, the NIV, the King James translated into German, Spanish, the American Standard, Tagalog, French. How about the modern English translations, street language Bibles, hundreds of others that are out there in the world. Which Bible? Which Bible? Listen, here's my point. They all inspire by the Holy Spirit. They are used in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. The word in and of itself without the Holy Spirit are just words. And that is my point when I talk about subjective Christianity. The Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, is love, peace, joy, uh, and the, uh, the other things. And so we cannot let the letter override our love for other people who differ with us on what the letter says. Don't get this experiment wrong from me. I love the word. But if we use the letter, the letter kills. I'm going to end up with these last ones. You just look for yourself. Matthew says, Think not that I came to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. Matthew 26, 52 says, All that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Proverbs 13, uh, 22, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Jesus said, Sell all that you have and give alms. Psalms 112, 1-3, Blessed is the man that fears the Lord. Wealth and riches shall be in his house. Matthew 19, 24, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Why do I bring these up? I know what Jesus' message was relative to the name it and claim it of the Old Testament and prosperity gospel and all that stuff. I understand that. But here's the point. We have people who say the Old Testament is just as viable for scripture as the new. They use it to justify getting involved in politics. And so we have all that going on. If they're going to use the Old Testament, how do you do it in light of what the new says? Blessed is the man that fears in the Lord. No, Exodus 20, 13 says, Thou shalt not kill. And then we read, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and slay every man his brother. Exodus 32, 27. Don't kill. We understand what it means. I'm just saying, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then we read in Isaiah 3.22, the new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. He calls the Sabbath days iniquity there. 
Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you are saved through faith, not of works. James 2.4, you know this one. You see then how by works a man is justified and not by faith only. It's the greatest uh in the New Testament. Thank you, James. I think James has to be understood properly. Then we read, And the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and come forth. Then we read in Job, And the cloud is consumed and vanish away, so he that goeth down into the grave shall come up no more. Lay not for yourselves treasures in heaven upon the earth, and then in the house of the righteous is much treasure. Genesis 32, 30, I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. John 1, 18, No man has seen God at any time. Happy is the man that finds wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. Ecclesiastes, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. The Lord is good to all. Psalms 145, I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Isaiah 45, 7. Jesus said, whoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. And then in Matthew 23, 17, Jesus said, you fools and blind. He used the word that he said earlier is a, a, is a, a condemnation. Kings, 2 Kings 8, 26. 20 and two years old was Ahaza when he began to reign. And of course, 2 Chronicles 22, 2, 40 and two years old was Ahaza when he began to reign. The earth abides forever, Ecclesiastes 1, 4. The elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works therein shall be burned up, 2 Peter 3, 10. I am merciful, say the Lord, and I will not keep my anger forever. You have kindled my anger, in, uh, which shall burn forever. James 1.3, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither, neither tempteth he any man. And Genesis, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Those that seek me shall find me early, Proverbs 8.17. Proverbs 1.28, they shall call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. God is not a man that he should lie. Ezekiel 24, 9. And if the prophet be deceived when he has spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. Exodus 3, 21, 22. When you go, you shall not go empty, but every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourn in her house jewels and silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and you shall put them on your sons and upon your daughters, and you shall spoil the Egyptians. This is before leaving uh, Egypt. God told the children of Israel to take, ask, and borrow all these things from the Egyptians. And then we read in Leviticus 19.3, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither, neither rob him. We read, the, uh, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and neither do they toil or spin. God so clothe the grass of the field that he shall not clothe you. And then we jump down to 1 Timothy 5, 8. But if any provideth not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he's defied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Jesus says, you got to provide. You got to, uh, I mean, Timothy says, Paul says, you have to provide or you're worse than an infidel. Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field. God clothes them. Don't care about tomorrow. Don't worry about it. The sparrows, all that stuff. Which are we to take? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Take heed that you do not your alms before men and be seen of them. Which is it? I've always wondered that as I studied that. As Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. In Matthew 6, 5, Jesus said, When you pray, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the quarters of the streets that they may be seen of men. Maybe the caveat there is uh, uh, Solomon didn't want to be seen of men. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. 
One man esteems one day above another. Another man esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Love that passage. That is at the heart of the matter. First, Second Samuel 6.23, Before Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. And Second Samuel 21.8, The five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul. Was it a different Michael? No. Before we open the phone lines, and I know we have two calls here uh, that I'm going to get to, I want to point something out. We're going to go to the overhead here. Larry pointed this out, and we've done this before, but I think it's important. Okay, Larry, after the show last week, said, what about growth? You know, what about maturation in the body of Christ? And, and that is such a, an important point when we're talking about subjective Christianity because we take things in different ways and we, we believe them at a certain time. And as we grow in the word, we start to take on different perspectives. And that's why the mature in Christ need to have, need to have uh, patience and long suffering with the immature. So I love the illustration. One person who has come to know Jesus is saying, I can't see whatever you're talking about. Another person who has come to know Jesus is standing here and they say, I can't hear what you're talking about. And they keep climbing and they get to this point and the wind is blowing and, the, and the, this person says, I can't feel what, this, what you're talking about. We have all these different things going on, all in this way that God is leading us. And finally, when we get to the top and we can look back at where we've been, we say, ah, I can, now I can see, now I can hear, now I can feel. And, but it's only after the climb through the mountains of truth, as Nietzsche said. So we have to do the climb. And that as we progress this way, we are going to leave things behind. We're going to leave things behind. And it doesn't mean that those things were wrong. It just means that we interpreted them wrongly. And every ascent leads to new information and a new view. That's the essence of subjective Christianity. And it lends to growth. And it lends to what Larry was asking about. Well, what about growth? How does this apply to what you're talking about? It applies very well. And that's why we don't fight with people. Now, I have a lot of people who are very mature in the faith and they fight with me and they think I'm, I'm a babe and I will change and grow. And they'll say, look how you've changed. That is true. If you're not changing in the faith, you're not growing. If you're clinging to something and you're saying, this is how it is and I'm not going to hear anything else, you are refusing to grow. We pat ourselves on the back for stability. I pat myself on the back for a willingness to try to change and seek more. Okay, listen, we're going to show you a quick spot. We're going to come back to Joshua in Vegas and Mark in Ireland. Take a look at this. I can't believe you told for me to set my
going to Joshua in Las Vegas on line one. Joshua, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How's it going? Hey, good. How you doing? Hey, doing good. Hey, so, um, you know, you're talking about changing views and, you know, getting, seeing things a lot differently. I noticed, I, I thought, my brother tried to show me your show when I first became a Christian like six years ago. And uh, recently I decided, you know, I'm going to check out Sean McCraney again. And um, I looked at your second coming series. Oh. And I, not I noticed that you've recently embraced the Preterist perspective. Yes. And I was just like, I thought that was awesome. So I've been listening to your show probably about five or six hours a day lately. Huh. Uh, been getting a ton out of it. Uh, you know, going back to your old uh, Mormon stuff and, and, and studying all of that. But I have a couple questions for you. Yeah. Um, well, uh, more or less one, one question. Um, since you've come to the preterist perspective, how has that impacted your view of Revelation 20, the sea giving up for dead? Uh, I think that the sea giving up the dead can be taken as either uh, people being uh, uh, relieved from hell or the hell giving up its dead and standing for the great white throne, or it could be symbolic language for resurrection. But it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a symbolic language, and it doesn't mean all the sailors and the people on the Titanic are going to be coming out of the sea at that time. That's just absolute literal uh, uh, application to that. And But I will say this, uh, Don Preston is going to be here, and I'm going to let him no, answer that awesome. question. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, because I, I know that you take a position that in the future, you know, uh, a lot of people are going to, uh, you know, uh, people will be released from hell. Is that my, is that uh, the understanding that I've arrived at from uh, yeah. listening to you? Yeah, hell will give up its dead. They'll stand before the great white throne, be judged. And those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be cast into the lake of fire created for Satan and his angels. Okay, but haven't you taken a, a past perspective on the book of Revelation? I have, but I think the, I've taken a past perspective on everything physically that's written in the Bible, but I think there are spiritual insights and lessons that are just as applicable, but to us spiritually. So it doesn't mean we can't learn doctrine and understand who the Lord is by uh, uh, reading the scripture. Just because it was fulfilled, Jesus literally did miracles with people's eyesight and ears and hearts or brought them back from the uh, grave when he was walking on the earth. Doesn't mean that there's, there isn't a spiritual application to that in our life where he causes people to hear the truth and to see the truth and their hearts to be healed and to be converted. I think everything has a spiritual application as we read the Bible today. Okay, fair enough. Cool. Hey. Um, hey, I I've got uh, one question that's a little off topic, but I've got some Mormon boys coming over to my house this Saturday. What do you think? I've been, I mean, I read the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, and the Doctrine and Covenants in the last week and a half. I mean, just flew through it. I'm wondering, what are your favorite things <coughs> that, that, uh, that you, uh, what are the, probably the best things that I could use um, uh, to talk to these boys about? Uh... 
You know, I, one is the old question is, what does the, what does your church offer me that I don't have through Jesus Christ? And if, okay. you, can, if you can give me that, then I'll consider, you know, uh, converting. And then you have to be prepared to know your scripture that if they say, well, we have a prophet, and, you, and then you cite uh, Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, it says that that was, now we have Jesus Christ. If they say we have apostles, you cite where I think it was Peter who says that Christ is our apostle. Uh, if they say, well, you know, we have a food storage program, you cite Jesus where he says, you know, don't care for what you uh, have today, that God will take care of you. You use the scripture to your advantage. They say, well, we have a really good social program. You know, you say, well, my, all my sociability is in Christ. Just keep taking everything they say as to why. If they say the priesthood, you quote Hebrews, it says, Jesus is our high priest. So if you understand the scripture well enough, I think you're gonna, you'd be pretty good at using that approach. The other one that I would use is, have you been born again? And that goes back to our method from the beginning, and I think it works. Listen, elders, I just want to know if you've been born again. It's an imperative in scripture. You must be born again. Have you been born again? And if they say, yeah, I'm born again, every time I go to the sacrament meeting and take the sacrament, you say, Jesus used the word birth there to symbolize a singular event of a person having the Holy Spirit and receiving it into their heart. Birth is not a lifelong event where you go to church every week. I would use born again, challenge them to go to God directly. You're just going to probably be planting seeds. The culture is too hard on them, and except in the case of like Adam's Road. But you plant those seeds and they'll germinate later. The word of God does not return void. All right, man. Thank you so much. I'm excited about your ministry. I'm excited about Don Preston. In fact, I might even come over to Utah, uh, come over and, and watch that. Uh, maybe hang out with you guys. You guys still do Denny's afterward? Well, we do if you're in town. <laughs> All right, sounds good. So maybe I'll meet you. All, All right, right, Josh, we look night. forward to it. All right. Thanks. Have a good night. Thanks for Bye. calling. Bye-bye. We're going to Mark in Ireland. He's a previous caller. Mark? Johnny, Mark, what's the crack? How you doing? Put the beer away, Mark. Hey? Put the beer away. Yeah, put beer. Um, what's what's the crack there with the um, with the, the streaming? Do you not pay the bills there or something? <laughs> yes, it very well could be the way things are going. But uh, uh, no, sometimes we have technical issues that are not in our hands. But we're trying. Uh, not to worry. Um, for, first of all, um, I uh, this is kind of embarrassing. I need to apologize. Um, because I, when you were, were talking about Matt Slick um, couple, uh, like a month or two ago, I thought, when I heard that, I thought that was an industrial paint spillage. You, know what <laughs> you thought it was <laughs> Yeah. And, you thought and it I, was what? I thought, an industrial paint spillage. <laughs> you know, like an oil slick, matte paint, like matte slick. Got, got it. Uh, oh, he's on one tonight. I thought Calvinism was a fashion brand, so I need to apologize to that man there and, you know, to the any, any confusion that may have been, uh, been, been caused there. Now, I was anything else. Aye. Um, there was a, uh, someone from the state came over and he, um, he gave a talk. And it was a 20-minute talk, so I was, you know, listening to at least some of it anyway. And... He was talking about the things that you talk about, like 
meditating um, temple covenants, uh, home teaching, stuff like that. And he was asking rhetorical questions like, do we need to do these to get into heaven? And I, I, I thought you were kind of in cahoots with him for a while. Um, he said, no, we don't. But if we don't do those things, we can't um, reap the, the blessings of them. And he gave an example of tithing as being, you know, okay, it's just, just 10%. But you learn through payment um, how to budget, how to um, plan ahead, and, and so on, and to be financially responsible, um, as opposed to people who, um, you know, have 20 credit cards and five bank that, loans. That was uh, Doug Bundy, I think. Uh, probably. I think that um, was the guess. Or, or, or he, he, he probably lifted that, that yeah. talk from the, the guy. Um, because he, he went on to, you know, give those same examples that, you know, home teaching, you know, you, you, you build confidence. Hey, you know, Mark. Kind of public speaking. I, My brother, we have other calls waiting. Even though you're calling from Ireland, we thank you. Our prayers are with you. Thanks for watching, my brother. Take care of yourself. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, we've got about three or four minutes. I think there's a caller waiting. Let me know. We can fit him in. Really quickly, I want to tell you a true story. This is a true story, and it, and it helps you understand why the letter cannot trump love, and we have to use discernment. I was uh, in a restaurant on Sunday morning preparing for the sermons here in Salt Lake, and uh, a, uh, a, a very fairly well-noted apologist came into the restaurant, Christian apologist, uh, up here for the Manti pageant. And uh, I was acquainted with this apologist. So uh, we sat at a table and, and he and I were looking out the window at the parking lot and some people who were with him were sitting there facing us across the way. And we watched a van pull in and it had a church emblem on the side. And out of this van came a fairly large uh, older woman and a, a man in his 70s, mid 70s, old and gray, and then a woman who was probably mid-30s, and the women were dressed in Sunday dress. They looked very conservative, uh, but the 30, mid-30-year-old woman had a priest collar on, and, uh, it, and it had the little white square and the black, and then her dress. Well, the apologist sitting next to me, I can't believe this. What, what is this? And, and I said, I really want to find out if this woman is a, a, uh, an Episcopalian or a Catholic. And now here's the thing, and I mean this in all sincerity, I just like to say it as it is. She was, um, she had a gimp, she had some sort of physical deformity or inability to move, she wore a pair of very thick glasses, and her face looked like she suffered from some kind of palsy. She had things obviously wrong with her physicality. She could have been a genius, I don't know, well, we were sitting by the entrance to this place and they came in to, to the hostess and I said to her, listen, I'm sorry, but are you a Catholic or are you Episcopalian? And she said, no, uh, we're non-denominational Christian. And immediately the apologist jumps up and says, have you ever read the Bible? Do you understand what it says in 1 Corinthians about a woman keeping silent in church? 
Do you understand that you don't have any right at all to be teaching? And what is, and she goes, sir, sir, we are done here. We are done. And immediately it was this, this, this friction. So the apologist comes back and I'm laughing my head off. Not at her pain, but just the fact, I said, do you have any type of filter that says this person, leave alone, let them wear the collar, that's all they've got in their life. I mean, where does the word, I speak the truth, the truth has to be, I said, I, look at those people, they're good, godly people, look at them, I don't care, truth is truth. All right, so I said, I, I'm a peacemaker, I'm going, so I went over to the table, I said, I'm really sorry. I, I said, that had nothing to do with me. And uh, they recognized us from Heart of the Matter. They recognized me and said, yeah, I watched your show. And I said, I just want you to know, and the old man said, I want you to know we really love the Lord. We really do. You know, that's the point of all this. People believe what they're gonna believe. The Bible is a great inspire. It's God's word. We take it the best of our ability, but we've got to stop crucifying people, dividing. There's some events going on in the state this week. I mean, it's just bent on this angry division of let's this call this. It's not the work of God. The, the work of the spirit is love. God will sort everything out. His Holy Spirit is in charge. If people are errant, we can trust that God will work through them to bring them around to where he wants. And they're responsible for how they respond. We're not responsible for that. And so I'm just trying to appeal to anyone who may be listening, let's err on the side of love. People are mocking the, name, the, the word love now. Oh, let's just love them. Let's just let them do what they want and call it love. Well, I'm going to die going to heaven believing that love was, that trumps over everything. If I'm wrong on that, may God beat me with a few stripes. But I have a feeling that's not so far off the mark as evidenced by Christ and what he did and what he spent his time doing and what he didn't spend his time doing. Think about that. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Good show, kids. Going I am an existential cowboy on the wind. Wow, 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 wow. Good job, you guys. Thank you for all the backup. And I won't be coming out. I'm going in. This man's awake. A storm's arising. The dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the 